the Roman church. I believe it's 942 in your Bible. Actually, 943. We're going to be in the seventh chapter, the beginning of the seventh chapter this morning as we continue in our series uh, from faith into freedom and how the gospel as presented in the book of Romans transforms us from those who were in bondage to those who are now free in Christ and how we might live that way. And you'll remember that Paul started out with the serious problem of sin that all mankind has and has to deal with and that without um, there being justification from the Lord that we are doomed within our sin unless God intervenes. And yet God has intervened in Jesus Christ and has relieved us uh, from justification by justifying us in Christ. And so Paul says that's appropriated by faith. And in chapter 6 he talked about how uh, because of that we were dead to sin and yet alive to God. And so it begs the question this morning uh, from many then, what about the law? What about uh, the Old Testament? What about everything we've learned up to this date, how does that transform the way that we are to live as followers of Christ? So let's read from the Word of God. We're gonna, I'm going to actually start in chapter 6 at verse 22. Keep it in context and read through 7, verse 6. Hear the Word of the Lord under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end to eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Christ Jesus. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, That the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, then she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may live and belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear the fruit of God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray for the Lord's illumination. And now, Holy Spirit, I would ask your light to shine brightly upon your word that you would open our ears, that we may hear our eyes, that we may see, and that your grace would abound within our hearts, that we would know and be sanctified more and more unto the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our life, our Lord and our Master. Forgive my sins, O Lord. We open up your word. Amen. 
it's hard for us in our culture to begin to realize how um, offensive this new gospel would be uh, to a culture that had center it, centered itself around the Torah and the law of God and found its entire national identity not only in its traditions but also in the foundation of what God had laid down both in his moral law, which would be the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial law, which is all those other laws and traditions that the Levites put on top of God's moral law, in which the Jewish people or the Hebrew people or those who had studied the Old Testament would understand as the law or the Torah. And so it's a very difficult thing for us to begin to understand the traumatic words of the gospel for those who had centered their whole identity on that in the same way it might be difficult for you and I in our modern day to look at the flag of the United States with another flag flying over the top of it. Initially, many of us would be repelled by that. We'd be disgusted by that. We would, we would be offended by that. And that is truly the offense of the gospel that is being communicated to those who had centered themselves on the law of God. Not that the law was bad, but that they were finding their identity and their justification not in the mercy of God nor the heart of God, but in their own self-righteousness and ability to attempt to keep the law of God for their own justification. Think about that for a moment. I shared with the worship team yesterday a, a, a um, teaching that I would got a couple years ago from Jerry Bridges at a Ligonier conference where Jerry was speaking to a, a whole bunch of, of Christians gathered together at this conference. And he said this, which was kind of stunning. He said, you know, the number one sin in the church is not adultery. He said, although it's bad and it's rampant and our our disdain for the holy matrimony is is growing less and less or more and more. And it's it's not even it's not even stealing as bad as stealing is. And it's certainly not things like murder because rarely do do we in the church think of ourselves as murderers. He said, no, the number one sin in the church is this, self-righteousness. That our pews are filled with people who believe in their own righteousness. Think about that for a moment. If we don't murder, if we don't steal and we don't commit adultery, we pretty much think we're good people. Right? Right? We, we don't commit the big ones, so the little ones really don't matter that much. And yet the Scriptures tell us something completely different from God's perspective. I don't know if you've ever studied the larger catechism. It would it'd be a good exercise for all of us to do. You can Google it. You can find it there online. And I'd encourage you to get a modern version of it. But take some time to meditate and to study what does it mean to keep the commandments of God? 
And what are the implications of not keeping the commandments of God? For instance, when the Lord says, Thou shalt not steal. Whose reputation are you stealing with gossip? Thou shalt not covet. How often do you look at a billboard and say, If I only had that. Thou shalt not bear false testimony against your brother or your sister or your neighbor. How often have we spread rumors about one another when we have not known the facts? And we understand from the letter of James to the church in the second chapter that if you've broken any of these, you've broken them all. Because the one who said, do not commit adultery, is also the one who said, do not have any other idols. Have no other gods before me. And you see, that's the real offense to us. It's the real challenge for us. It's the real place. It's not that we don't think of God's law highly. It's that we don't think of God's law highly enough. Because if we meditate upon the law of God, if we truly study not only what God's law reveals and how it's instructive, but also what God implies in the law of how we're to live, it will be, as Luther said, an axe to our own self-righteous roots. And it will chop us down. And we will find what the Reformers called the second purpose of the law, which was to be a tutor to point us to Christ. And that's the real challenge in the church today. The real challenge is not legalism or the opposite of legalism, which would be antinomianism, nomos being the law and anti against the law. But the real challenge is not to live in our own self-righteousness of thinking we could either be legalistic or antinomian within our own righteousness. But to find ourselves as Isaiah would find himself, woe is me, for I am undone. I need a Savior. Paul says that's really the, the act of the laws to do that, was to teach us our need for a Savior. That there's no way we could ever fulfill the moral obligations of that which God has revealed about His own moral nature. And you see, the moment that you think, or I think, I have in my own abilities the strength and the capability of fulfilling thou shalt have no other gods before me within my own strength, I blaspheme God by saying, Lord, I know the limits of your moral nature. And I in my humanity and my flesh and in my own capabilities can reach that. What an insult. What an anathema to the living, holy, holy, holy God that any human would think in their own capabilities they could keep the heart of what it means to have no other gods before me. 
how foolish. Paul says, you are to live under a new reality. A new worldview. Because you understand the old reality was a reality of bondage. What he says in verses 1 through 3, he says, he says there's a bondage that we are after. He says, for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband. It's a, it's a beautiful word picture. It's a perfect word picture that Paul uses there of the bounds of marriage, of saying there has been a matrimonial relationship that has happened between the law and, and God's people and God's creation, and we have been bound under that. How did we get bound under that? By realizing that there was a time in the same way in, in chapter 6 where, where Paul compares the, the, new, the old Adam to the new Adam. He compares the old marriage here to the new marriage. That there was a marriage between Adam and between Eve that was based upon a covenantal purpose which was broken by Adam and Eve. And they found themselves in the breaking of their matrimonial celebration of one another into a bounding of the law of sacrifices upon them so that they might know redemption. And the law became to them a taskmaster. You must do this over and over and over again. You must make sacrifices over and over and over again because the law requires this. And you are bound by that. And you are bound to it because of your sin. Later on, Paul will say, if I didn't know, if I didn't have the commandment of what is it to covet, how would I know what coveting is? And because we do have that law, we understand there's a binding by that law upon us that the moral character of God has been revealed. And because it has been revealed to us, it is therefore obligatory to us to be able to seek to fulfill that law. We are bound to make that law our perfection. There was a matrimonial relationship that took place. And we were bound by that. And that was the reality. And it is reality for every human being apart from Christ. Whether they want to acknowledge that or not is a moot issue. The acknowledgement of whether God exists or doesn't exist, their proclamation or their denial doesn't mean that it's not true. There are theologians today that would tell you that the law of God in the Ten Commandments is not obligatory to mankind today, and they would not tell you the truth. Because the law of God is not only instructive in the way that we are to live, but is relevatory in who God is. You see, the law of God reveals the moral character of God. And every human being made in the image of God is bound by that creation 
to manifest the morality of the Creator. And yet, because of sin, their binding means they must do that perfectly without error and without inappropriate motivation for that to become their justification. For their moral character to come to the elevation of the moral moral character of the triune, thrice holy God. And the Scriptures teach us, and hopefully our common sense, that there is absolutely no way that perfection can be reached in human capabilities. And if they could, then our God is very, very, very small. It's the cause of self-righteousness to have a little God is to have great self-righteousness. But if God is limitless and infinite in His glory and His beauty and in His perfection, then we come to the truth and the realization There's no way within my own capabilities I could ever cover that gap by keeping the law. Because I'm bound to it. But Paul says there's good news. That that reality of bondage for the believer is an old reality. It's passed away. And that's what was so offensive to those who find their identity in legalism and in self-righteousness. It's what's so devastating about the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And Paul anticipates the question, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to you who know the law, that the law was binding on a person only as long as there are uh, uh, that only as long as they are bound to that which lives. In verse 3, though, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law and she marries another man. She is not an adulteress. What Paul is saying there is this, that that marriage that was to the old Adam and the binding and the bondage of being underneath the flesh in Christ because of His death and our death in Him, we have been released from that bondage to enter into a new matrimonial relationship with Christ. And in that we understand as His bride that it was our husband who did not deny his role in the garden by saying nothing to the serpent, nothing to his wife, but was the true husband that in the garden crushed the head of the serpent and said, leave my wife 
alone. I will fulfill the obligation of the law for her. Paul is teaching that you have died to that old bondage. You have died to the obligatory nature of having to keep what you could never keep. And you are made alive into the benefits of the one who did do what you could not do, the Lord Jesus Christ and His keeping of the law. And as His bride, as His matrimonial mate, you are the beneficiary of all that is your husband's. And Paul says, this is the gospel. This is the good news. There's been a death. There's the reality of a death. It's what most of us don't get. That there's an objective truth about every single one who places a saving faith in Christ Jesus. That there has literally and objectively so been a death that occurred with you in conjunction with the death of Christ. And as He died for our sins, we died with Him. And as He was buried with our sins, we too were buried into Him. So that in that death, we remember, we recall, and we believe that as He rose, we too have risen with Him. That that which used to be about me is no more. It is why Paul in Galatians would say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I under the obligations of the old covenant, but it's me living in the fulfillment of the new covenant. As I once was bound by those Ten Commandments written on stone, I live now in Christ in the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.31 where the law of God is now not written on stone but written on my heart. How can that be true? Because I'm written on the heart of Christ. And you are written on the heart of Christ. And as His heart fulfill the total obligation of freeing you from the bondage of the law, so have you. But Paul says it doesn't stop there. That's not the the bus stop as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. That's not the, the train stop for God's grace. We don't receive this grace from God, this freedom from bondage for it to stop somewhere so that we can begin to live again in self-righteousness. Paul says, no, that there's a new a reality of a new and a living way. In verse 4 he says this, My brothers, you have died. But look in verse 6 where he says, you live. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear the fruit of death. But, behold the underlying truth. We are now released from the law, 
having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What is Paul saying? It's it's the law no longer something to be concerned with. It's not at all what he's saying. When he talks about living by a new way, he's not talking about take the character of God and trash it. He's not saying ignore that which you have lived upon all your life. What he's saying is, is the old way was you were in bondage for that to be your righteousness. You were in bondage to keep the law perfectly under a sacrificial system so that you might earn your own salvation. But because of Christ's death and your faith in Him, you now live in a new way where the law is not obligatory to your salvation any longer or even your sanctification. But the law is that of fulfilling the character of your husband and bringing Him glory in the way that you live as an image bearer of your Father. It's what Jeremiah means by the law is now written on your hearts. There's a new character for the believing Christian. Saving faith brings us to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Saving faith drives us to want to reflect the glory of our Father. Saving faith never, ever leads us to cheapen that which Christ has done. There's a reality of a new and living way. Why? Because Christ lives. That I'm still in that matrimonial relationship with Him as long as He lives. Christ will never die again. Therefore, my matrimonial relationship to Christ and to bear all that He is in my life is eternal. It begs the question, doesn't it? Are you becoming more loving? Are you becoming more kind? Are you finding your intimacy with God growing deeper and deeper and deeper every day so that the idolatry of our minds and our lives begins to fall away? Is the name of your Lord becoming so beautiful to you, so so wondrous to you, that you've never you you no longer minimize it to a curse word? And thinking that that's what it means to, to take the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's not just that. But that I begin to understand the glory and the beauty of God and His, His life within me means to live contrary to that way of life. It's to live in vain. It's to li- take God's name in vain to live in the flesh. When you and I are commanded, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, it isn't about a curse word. It's about living antithetically to that which Christ has called you to live. 
It's the vanity of thinking that somehow Christ has died for me and now I live for me and not for him. What is more antithetical to the Christian walk than to be unloving, than to be unkind, than to be short patient, to be self-centered, self-focused, and above all things, self-righteous. It is to exhume that corpse which used to live and put its decaying nature around our neck and to live in rotten flesh when we are clothed with the glory of Christ. Paul says how contrary to think that you could ever live that way. That you could ever take that which God has revealed as His character to you and I and just trash it. And that's really, it's the heart of legalism, isn't it? The heart of legalism is this. I can do it. I don't need the Holy Spirit. I don't need God. I know how to keep the law. And I can do it. And not only can I do it, but I can judge you when you don't do it. And I can manage this. I can keep it all in a box. And that's the heart of legalism. The heart of legalism minimizes God's law. It says it's nothing. I can do it. And the heart of antinomianism is this. I can ignore God's law. I can just throw it in a corner somewhere. Paul says the heart of the gospel is this. That it's no longer obligatory. The law is no longer obligatory for your justification or your sanctification because you have died to that and there's a new living way that causes you to live in love with God's law. And like the psalmist in Psalm 119, you can say with your whole heart, God, I love your law. It is life to me and no longer death because it reveals your character to me. And it shows me not only do I need a Savior, but the most beautiful of all, that you have provided the Savior. That you have given Him freely out of your love. That you did truly so love the world that you gave Him. That He might be fully dead on my behalf fully buried on my behalf and fully resurrected on my behalf so that I may live now eternally on His behalf. And you will struggle with this. It is the walk of sanctification. But we are called to bear fruit. Sometimes I look at my fruit and I think, boy, I was a good day today. I got some grapefruit growing. Big old juicy stuff. There's other days I look and I think raisins. But I live in this truth 
then when God looks at me from his throne and his judgment seat, he sees a tree in full blossom because I bear the fruit of Christ and not the fruit of my own efforts. And I have a Father that no longer condemns me for where I fall short, but loves me and encourages me where I might grow. A Father that no longer sends the law to be a foot on the back of my neck that says don't get up, but a hand of grace that picks me up and says keep going. I finished the race for you. Get up and run for the joy of running. And when you run, you will look like me. Just keep going. What do we do with this? What are the exhortations and the applications? First is this. Start. Start through prayer and fellowship and the Word, studying the Word, Beginner into your relationship with Christ. Don't just be a bus stop for His grace. But grow in it. Come before Him even today. Even before you leave your pew today, come before Him in a bowed head with palms up and say, Lord, I want to grow in You. I want to grow to reflect You more and more to people. When people come in contact with me, I want them to have a sense There's someone who knows the Lord. When they come in contact, I want them to see a joy that comes from my salvation. Start. Go head down, palms up. Study. What does it look like for me to manifest the fruit of the Spirit? What does that look like for me to be more loving, more kind, more joyful, more peaceful, more long-suffering? Begin to enter into that relationship with Christ by prayer, by His Word, and by being in relationship with believers who are on the same journey you are. Number two, start learning and knowing what it means to bear the fruit of God. Start learning and knowing what it means to bear the fruit of God. I'll tell you something. I've been walking with Christ now 50 plus years. I didn't just wake up one morning and say, I think I'll love somebody today. I think I'll go be kind to somebody today. It wasn't the first thought in my mind. When I was a boy, it was Cocoa Puffs. When I was a young man, it was, hope I get a date. When I became a middle-aged man, it was, I hope I paid the bill last night. As I become an older man, I hope I can get out of bed. But the reality is where we should be growing at the very beginning of the day is, Lord, who can I show you to? Normally the first person is our spouse. Oftentimes it's our children but most certainly it's our fellow believers as well. Because above all people, we need to encourage one another. We need to lift one another up, not tear one another down. 
we do that by intentionally showing the fruit of the Spirit to one another so that we can go out there to bear this fruit. And lastly this morning, start learning and knowing what it means to serve in a new and living way of the Spirit. God has given us this amazing grace. He's given us this indwellment of His Spirit. He is helping us bear forth the fruit that belongs to us. Now we must harvest it. And we must send it out into the community. This building is not a depot. It is not a storage house. It's not a warehouse of the self-righteous. But it is the generating plant of those who know Christ to go out and bring glory to their Lord for what He has done in their lives so that the world may know our God reigns. And all glory be to our God. You have a new reality. And a new way to live. Let's go live it. Let's pray.